This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are gonna talk about it all. Dr. Peter DiCioli is an associate professor of political science at Stony Brook University, where he teaches courses on moral politics and public policy. His research concerns how people strategically form friendships, how people understand notions of property and ownership, and the role of moral condemnation in social functioning. Today, we discuss his research on moral condemnation, the function of moral impartiality, third-party judgment, and punishment. Specifically, we talk about his theory which construes moral judgment as playing a functional role in reducing the costliness of conflicts as they arise. I've always been drawn to kind of the big questions of philosophy. So I was a philosophy major as an undergraduate. Uh, And at some point while you're doing that, you start wondering, what is going on with this mind that's philosophizing? Right, so philosophy naturally kind of turns to psychology. Uh, So that's how I got interested in uh, psychology. And then pretty early as an undergrad, I got introduced to uh, evolutionary biology and uh, comparisons to uh, other primates. And it was just very obvious to me that humans are animals that were primates and that comparing to other species, you know, was a good way to understand what's going on with our philosophical minds. Uh, so I kind of set off to understand, you know, like the human mind, uh, thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't interested in morality uh, per se uh, at that time, uh, but just more the idea was why, do, you know, what's going on with the human mind? Why, why are we philosophizing? Why are we trying to figure out our place in the universe? And uh, so one of the natural things that we uh, uh, think about there is, you know, why we have big brains. So we're thinking about human evolution and we see this uh, rapid brain expansion uh, over the last few uh, million years. And it's pretty natural to ask, you know, what happened? Presumably somewhere in there is where we became, you know, a philosophical species. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of the question is where did this, you know, human uh, intelligence uh, come from? And uh, as I looked into uh, evolutionary psychology and started learning about that, I was probably a little surprised at first to find that the uh, main theory uh, of uh, for uh, why humans evolve giant brains is that it's to deal with the social world. Uh, so that's kind of Uh, one of the most difficult things our brain has to deal with is uh, interacting with others. This means uh, cooperating with them, uh, arguing with them, uh, fighting with them, uh, coordinating, uh, so trading. Uh, All of these things that we do with other people are very difficult and complicated for a brain uh, to pull off. And uh, so that's called the social intelligence hypothesis. Uh, It goes by... A dozen other names, uh, the social brain hypothesis, uh, the social complexity hypothesis, uh, but they all uh, mean the same thing, uh, that it's the social world, uh, uh, humans increasing sociality, uh, that uh, was the selective force that shaped our uh, big brains. And specifically, most of that research has focused on cooperation. And I know that you know a lot of that work and have had a lot of people talk about cooperation uh, on your show. Um, so, so that's what I was thinking about too, just like everybody else, um, I was thinking about cooperation. How did we, you know, evolve big brains and start cooperating in large groups of unrelated, uh, individuals, uh, which is, that's how biologists, uh, think about it. And, um, and, uh, kind of the, one of the more, uh, promising theories at the time and, and still, uh, is that, uh, punishment had a big, uh, Uh, place in this and uh, often called third party punishment, which means punishing someone for something they did to someone else. And humans do this much more than most other species. And so it kind of stands out. Uh, And there's uh, some uh, 
many well-known experiments where allowing people to punish each other you know, promotes cooperation in the lab. Mm. I'll also caution that by it kind of depends exactly how you let them punish each other. If you let the people who get punished punish back, then the whole thing falls apart. So it's, it's not, uh, then, then they just start fighting endlessly uh, and nobody you know, comes out with any money. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, so that story was uh, probably a little too simple, but that's what uh, many people were thinking about uh, when I was in uh, graduate school around uh, 2005, 2006. Uh, so I was thinking about the same thing, thinking about third-party punishment. Uh, and then as I thought about that, I was just kind of noticing that usually when people do this, there's a moral justification for it. And so that brought me to moralistic punishment uh, as the kind of main form of third party punishment. And that's what brought me to uh, moral psychology. And then um, one of the things I noticed uh, there was that, that kind of stood out to me was this idea that we have in, in our uh, moral judgments that they're supposed to be impartial. Uh, and this, this you know, probably seems pretty normal to most people uh, because it's, that's what our intuition says. Oh, yeah, of course, moral judgment should be impartial. It doesn't depend on who you are. It just depends on you know, what you did. Um, but since I was uh, trained with you know, this evolutionary psychology background and all these theories of cooperation, I, I knew that those theories say that partiality is like the most important part of it. Uh, mm. So you're supposed to help those who help you uh, and not help those who don't help you. So you're supposed to be partial uh, towards your family uh, and towards your friends. And the most of the models of the evolution of cooperation depend on that. And as soon as people are impartial or, or indiscriminate, uh, cooperation uh, falls apart and uh, cheaters uh, start to thrive. Uh, so, uh, so immediately this concept just kind of stood out as something odd and you know, requiring, some, uh, requiring attention uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember in an early paper, uh, John Haidt uh, also uh, commented on this, and that uh, uh, stood out to me. Uh, so, um, uh, so, so that got me. So then I started thinking about, you know, how does partiality work in humans, and that made me think about uh, coalitions and alliances, and um, and that's kind of what set me off into my uh, current thinking on. Uh, moral judgment is uh, that it helps solve some of the problems that uh, come out of our coalitional thinking, uh, namely that uh, we side with our allies, and then when everyone does that, we end up in a giant fight. Um, so wow. that that's that's the basic trajectory from you know, starting with philosophy uh, yeah. and ending with uh, moral judgment. Really cool. Um, mm -hmm. Very cool trajectory there. I love that. So I'm before, and, and that was such a beautiful transition right into the, the topic of discussion today. But before jumping in there, I want to ask a little bit, it, it's, you started from a philosophical background and then started wondering about the mind. I'm curious, as you found yourself studying morality and moral judgments, if you've thought about the framing, I'm, um, because your work is very much taking a, a functional role, uh, which makes sense, mm -hmm. right, from an evolutionary perspective. And I'm also thinking about philosophy and sort of the, um, your thoughts on the idea that, that, what is and and almost like the ought is distinction but i want to be careful yes. there because i know that that's often misunderstood but this idea that morality is really the world of shoulds is fundamentally its own separate realm at least philosophically some people think seem to believe that so i'm curious your thoughts about the independence of morality apart from the physical world and how that's informed your taking on of this, this functional um, lens in your own studies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, even 
Right. So there's that uh, fundamental distinction between, you know, what is and what ought to be. Um, uh, yeah. So it's, it's hard to say it, it that intersects with a, a bunch of different issues. So I'm trying to figure out which one to, uh, on, to, sure. Yeah. Well, just when you were studying philosophy as mm -hmm. an undergrad, I, I presume that must have been as an undergrad because I believe your doctorate yes. is psychology, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. As an undergrad, and, and it sounds as though you were actually, you sort of backed into morality. That wasn't the original mm -hmm. thing. But I'm curious if as an undergrad, you were, what your thoughts were about the distinction between shoulds and you know like physical yeah material. so i i was a philosophy major and i was mostly interested in questions like the nature of reality the difference between you know mm -hmm. our perceptions and and reality and like what we can know about the world and science yeah. and evidence and things like that so more much more on the is side i was never very interested in moral philosophy because mm -hmm. when I read moral philosophy, it sounded like they were just making things up. <laughs> uh, and I could, yeah. for every story I heard a moral philosopher say, I could think of dozens more that would come to, you know, the same conclusion or a different conclusion. And it just never, it always felt like pretty arbitrary. Uh, mm -hmm. They're just kind of making up terms and, and, uh, and just, you know, say, ultimately just saying what they want to be the case uh, with a, with a, you know, rational sounding justification. Uh, so I, it just seemed like they weren't doing anything of interest, um, mm -hmm. of, you know, too much interest. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so I wasn't interested in that uh, very much at first. Um, and so only when I started to see it as a strategy that humans are using to interact with each other, and you know, part of, uh, mm -hmm. as a part of human social life, did I start to become uh, interested in it. Okay. And, um, yeah, I, I would say my feelings are somewhat similar to, to that still. Like, uh, I don't think it's, uh, it's not like a scientific inquiry exactly, uh, but, um, you know, to try to figure out what's right and wrong. Uh, but now I view it, you know, much more from a psychological perspective. So now it's interesting to watch people have those debates uh, because I have ideas about, you know, why they're having that debate. Uh, and particularly, um, you know, it'd be pretty easy if we could just say morality was just a matter of taste. It's just, you know, some people like to eat chocolate and some people prefer vanilla. You know, it's just a taste. You know, that, that would be pretty easy and very consistent with uh, what we know about the mind and, and things like that. You know, like people want things, they want different things. This causes them to disagree sometimes and everything seems to fit, you know, pretty well that it's, uh, that it's a taste or a preference. It, it's, that mm -hmm. seems pretty clear. And if, people disagree, then they just have different preferences. But this doesn't fit our moral psychology at all, uh, because our moral psychology specifically says that it's not that. Uh, it's not just a preference. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, if we were to you know, continue to hold that, we would just be holding a view that's completely the opposite of what our moral concepts say. Uh, and that's not a good theory of morality, is just to deny morality altogether. Um, so mm -hmm. the concepts say, that they're objective. It doesn't mean they really are, but it. But that's an important part of the concept uh, that that we have to, uh, you know, deal with. And uh, the a theory I've been uh, working on uh, gives a reason for why this is the case. Uh, that the function of our moral judgments is to uh, reach agreements. Mm -hmm. And if we were to each have our own moral judgment, that would completely defeat the purpose of having a moral judgment. Uh, because how can we agree on something? Uh, how would it serve uh, the purpose of coming to agreements uh, if we were to just acknowledge that it's it's you know each of our uh, private tastes? Uh, yeah. So, so, so anyway, so uh, so yeah. So I think a kind of good a good theory about this would need to uh, balance that. You can't just say it's taste because that's just completely at odds with the, the basic concept itself. Mm -hmm. um, but then it's also kind of a tall order to, uh, to try to uh, say that like that one particular mor moral rule is factually correct. Uh, that's mm -hmm. not going to hold up too well uh, either. Uh, some rules are going to be more stable than others. 
Uh, so like the, the rules we're most familiar with, don't steal, don't kill, those are the most uh, stable. Yeah. Um, but, the, but there's plenty of other rules that we all uh, disagree on, like uh, whether it's okay to have sex before marriage or whether it's okay to you know, uh, pursue science to try to understand the universe, um, as opposed to just deferring to like religious authorities. Uh, so those are things that people disagree about and there's uh, you know, not gonna be a factual analysis that, that can tell you the answer to that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's go ahead and jump into that theory then because you have developed such a theory. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to just discuss this. So, you know, I read through your papers, I'm kind of familiar, but I don't know that um, all the listeners will be familiar with your functional, your theory of the functional role of moral judgments. Um, so let's, let's jump into that. And maybe a good place to start is to talk about what your thought process was for the types of strategies that could be used to reduce costly conflicts. Although I'm realizing, actually, let's back up even further. So could you explain from your theory's perspective what, what the role of moral judgments is in the first place? Because we've been sort of beating around the bush with it here, but let's just put that out there in um, sort of an explicit form. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so, so the idea is that, uh, so it's kind of rooted in conflict and coalitions uh, or alliances. Mm -hmm. And so the, the idea is that just in everyday life, uh, conflicts occur uh, all the time. Uh, these conflicts could be fistfights. I think that's often what people think of when you say the word fight. Uh, but humans are pretty skilled fighters. A skilled fighter means that you don't just come to blows right away because the basic, uh, uh, basic idea in fighting is to try to minimize your costs. Uh, you want to win the fight, but you want to minimize the costs. So skilled fighters uh, have many strategies for avoiding the costs. And when I say this, I'm thinking about uh, the animal world uh, because there's every animal fights and some are more skilled at it than others. And the ones that are more skilled uh, are better at uh, reducing the costs of, of fighting. Uh, so um, in, some, you know, in some species, fighting looks like slamming into each other and blood spewing everywhere. You, you can think of elephant seals uh, as a good example. Yeah. Uh, in some species, let's take red deer, a fight might look like roaring at each other uh, from 100 yards away. Uh, and then one uh, walking away. Uh, so the roaring is a good way of, you know, of getting out of the fight without too much damage. And that's the kind of fighting that humans do uh, uh, most of the time, you know, in our everyday life, if we're trying to relate to these ideas. Most of us aren't uh, swinging at each other uh, when we get into an argument or disagree about something. Uh, we're doing something more like the red deer. We're roaring at each other. Uh, or if you're a moral philosopher, then you're you know, sending arguments uh, to the, uh, against the other uh, person. Um, so, so we roar at each other and then we say, you know, the roars is con considered an honest signal of body size because you can't easily fake a deep sounding roar. You have to have the big body to, uh, to, uh, to, to show that. And that's kind of the neat trick that they have for uh, settling this dispute without having to come together and, and uh, slam their heads against uh, one another. Uh, so similarly, when uh, uh, moral philosophers roar, um, they're going to, uh, their arguments are going to you know, signal things like what other people are likely to believe. So if you make a really good argument, then the other person kind of says, you know, most people are probably going to uh, buy that person's argument. So they're, you know, quote unquote, winning. So most of our fighting takes this kind of a form um, and you know, just everyday arguments over you know, who should do the dishes or uh, things like that. Uh, we're kind of doing these subtle displays. Uh, and, um, and so that's the, that's the sort of everyday uh, interactions uh, where moral judgment uh, enters into it. And so, uh, so when you say that someone was uh, you know, wrong because they were playing their your neighbor's playing their stereo too loud. Uh, so you make a moral judgment uh, about that. 
uh, you're using a strategy uh, for dealing with these everyday conflicts uh, that come up. Uh, and it's only one of many strategies that you have, and it has distinctive characteristics uh, and, uh, you know, and pros and cons compared uh, to uh, other uh, strategies. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, so what is the function of it? So, um, so, that, so it's not too easy to figure out, you know, why you would use a moral judgment as opposed to something else, like just asking, you know, politely asking your neighbor to turn it down rather than saying it's wrong for you to play music at 2 a.m. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, so anyway, so it's, it's actually a fairly complicated strategy. So it takes a while to unwind like why you would use one versus the other. But the, but the theory uh, that I'm working with is that uh, uh, what moral judgment is especially good at is when two other people are having a conflict uh, and there's uh, multiple uh, others who are concerned, uh, bystanders who are observing it or family and friends who might come to know about it. Uh, and those bystanders um, need to choose sides in this conflict. And so they're going to use uh, moral rules to, to determine which side uh, they'll take. Uh, and uh, the benefit of this is that uh, they can uh, choose the same side this way. And this avoids getting into a situation where everyone just supports their own uh, better friends uh, and then both sides uh, escalate in, uh, with one coalition going against another, uh, which is something that happens in humans all the time. Uh, so we, we evolved uh, one strategy for trying to reduce this sometimes. Uh, but basically, humans get into a fight, squabble, two individuals, then they both call on their friends, then it's five against five, then it's 10 against 10, and then everyone suffers the uh, damages of, of uh, fighting. This is how human fights regularly have gone for millions of years. And so in that process, we developed a new tactic, uh, which was if they cross a moral rule that we've already laid out and argued about and set uh, clearly for everyone to see, uh, then we'll, then I'll, I'll uh, defer in that case and side against my ally if they're the one that broke the moral rule. Mm. So that's the basic strategy. Yeah. And um, could you also talk a little bit about why when when choosing sides, people wouldn't just defer to um, the most powerful or the most the person with the most resources in a given conflict. Sure. Yeah. So that is the the uh, the third major strategy that people use for choosing sides, which is to side with the higher status uh, person against the lower status. So humans are hierarchical. Uh, just like many other uh, mammals, uh, we have hierarchies of power. Uh, and hierarchies are actually designed also to reduce uh, the cost of conflict. It's, it's a little, a, a bit of an odd thing to say because it looks like the higher status person is kind of pushing ar around the lower status. Um, but, and that is true, um, but, uh, but the whole purpose of having dominance hierarchies uh, and having uh, status uh, is is to avoid coming to blows every single for every single disagreement uh, because the lower status remembers that the higher status one beat them before and that's the that's the origin of dominance uh, hierarchies. So humans form dominance hierarchies uh, like like many other mammals, uh, but we're we're actually uh, we also have anti hierarchy strategies uh, and we we probably do that. Uh, maybe more than any other mammal. A uh, few other mammals have some similar things. Uh, chimps will uh, gang up to attack uh, an alpha that's uh, becoming too bossy. Mm. Um, so, but, uh, so humans are, are, we're hierarchical, but probably more than hierarchical, we're anti-hierarchical. Uh, so, so we have both of these strategies in our minds uh, mm. and, and we lean towards the anti-hierarchical. And this is, uh, this conclusion is especially based on ethnographic uh, research among hunter-gatherer societies, uh, showing that they don't tolerate individuals that try to uh, impose too much, uh, use too much power and impose on others. Uh, they're mm -hmm. regularly knocking down uh, people that are 
bragging too much and uh, telling others uh, what to do. So, so we seem by, you know, naturally we're anti-hierarchical and it takes, you know, extra effort to create uh, hierarchies um, that are uh, stable. So anyway, so that's our, that's kind of, so when a conflict occurs, you know, we could side, uh, uh, we could side with the hierarchy. And so this would be like siding with a teacher against a student, right? Because the teacher's higher status uh, than the student or with the boss against a coworker uh, or with, you know, uh, the president against uh, uh, a senator. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so that, so we, we do those things. Um, and the problem with that is that that can lead to is that uh, now those individuals know they have reliable support from others. And so they're just going to become you know, more power hungry. Uh, and that is a threat to every person except for the person at the very top of the hierarchy, uh, because uh, once this person at the top knows they can count on everyone to support them, uh, they can just go around taking stuff uh, from everybody, uh, including even just the person just below them. Mm -hmm. uh, so that means everybody except for the person at the top has some interest in containing uh, this uh, person. Uh, and uh, so that's, uh, but so that's, that's the basic problem with you know, su always supporting the one uh, who's in power. It helps sometimes uh, and sometimes humans, human groups go that direction in large part because um, uh, choosing sides is what is called a coordination problem. So the best strategy depends on what others are doing. And if everybody else chooses sides based on power and you're the only one that, that doesn't, that just means you're gonna be on the minority side of fights uh, and, uh, and you're gonna suffer all the costs of, of losing for every conflict. Right. Uh, so, uh, so, that's, so this also kind of nicely explains why you know, we're generally anti-hierarchical, but we can get to an equilibrium of extreme uh, hierarchy, uh, you know, something like Nazi Germany being you know, uh, that uh, kind of obvious example. Right. And uh, this theory explains why that can happen, e even though it's unnatural. It's just because once everyone else thinks that everyone's going to side based on hierarchy, that's the equilibrium. And so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they're now stuck in that equilibrium. So as we're recording this mm -hmm. <laughs> in the middle of the coronavirus and mm -hmm. there are riots going on because of the recent incident of police brutality. And mm -hmm. in general, it's been a, a politically divisive time for several years now. I'm yes. once, like, you know, this theory would seem to suggest that um, moral judgments serve the role of creating an imbalance in side taking over conflicts. So, and yet it seems that there are so many examples of conflicts which are not so lopsided in terms of support on either side. Could you speak a little bit about how your theory makes sense of that? Sure. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so one function of moral judgments is that it can help us uh, detach from alliances when we need to. It doesn't mean we'll always use it that way. We could, we could, we could uh, choose to just align our moral judgments with our alliances. Uh, and uh, in that case, then we'll, especially if we, if we uh, don't do it very skillfully so that it's kind of obvious that we're that we're calling it a moral judgment, but really we're just um, being, uh, really we're just supporting our own faction. Um, and once that's clear to everyone, moral judgment will lose its weight entirely because the only purpose of uh, being impartial is, uh, be is if you think the other side's going to be impartial too. If they're not being impartial too, then there's no point in being impartial yourself. Uh, so then, then basically what, what has happened in that case is moral judgment is act, has actually just been deleted from the menu of strategies and we're back to just coalitions. Uh, so if, so when you see things, uh, if you see um, uh, like partisan polarization of moral judgments and so that everyone knows that Democrats morally judge this, Republicans morally judge that, uh, once that becomes sort of common knowledge, 
then those moral judgments have be basically become uh, disabled. Uh, mm -hmm. Now everyone just recognizes that as a coalitional move, uh, not as a moral move. And there's no reason for them to become, be more impartial when they hear that uh, because they have no uh, expectation that the other side will be impartial. So yeah, once you're kind of using morals, uh, moral rules um, sort of obviously hip hypocritically like that, then uh, they you know, fail to serve any uh, purpose. Uh, and and then then we're just reduced to the world that we were in before morality, where it's we just all we have is coalitions, uh, and then and you know just threats of force to try to come to uh, 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 to resolve a conflict. That's interesting, and I'm now curious what your thoughts are about like some of some of Linda Skitka's work on moral convictions, because you know she would take the stance that people experience some of these political issues as rooted in in moral issues almost more strongly in mm -hmm. some ways or at least with more fervor um i mean maybe that's not fair right because everybody agrees that murder is bad but mm -hmm. i don't know like what are what are people mm -hmm. do seem to experience these things as Certainly there's evidence that they experience them as coalitional, but there's also a lot of evidence that seems to suggest that they really experience it as a moral issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, there's, there's going to be uh, a mixture of both. And yeah, when it comes to uh, like the, the recent riots, I mean, when, when it comes to like a blatant murder that everybody saw in a video, I think the moral judgments are, is, you know, pretty clear there. And that's also why you're, we're seeing such a uh, overwhelming response of, uh, you know, rioting and things like that is because, because it is pretty clear. If it was less clear, then you'd see just as much opposition, you know, coming from the other side. Uh, so, so the call to, you know, uh, uh, to, to protest in this case is especially strong because it is a, you know, it is a clear case because it goes to a, a fundamental moral rule uh, that uh, that's very stable and that uh, no one can consistently, you know, up oppose uh, on the other side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So returning back to your theory, one of the pieces I read in your paper that I was struck by that really so actually, could I just pause you on that? I think I, I just doesn't, I think this is sort of a, maybe like that this uh, the situation is like an exception that kind of proves the rule really, because if you see like uh, a lot of the, if, if you're, if we're thinking about uh, uh, like this is a conflict about police brutality, then usually the, if you look at people who are typically on the side of the police, they're not typically on the side of the police right now. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're completely opposed, but they're, they're definitely severing that uh, connection. And so uh, just looking around at you know, different politicians, you're seeing statements that you would not have seen before this. Uh, so so that we are seeing you know, movement in that direction. Maybe people are expecting the movement should be even you know, you know, more, uh, 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 even bigger, uh, but... Um, uh, but yeah, but we are seeing more movement than we would have seen if it was a less, if it was a more ambiguous case. And, and that's exactly what you'd expect uh, with, you know, with these ideas. Yeah. And so you're in, in saying that you're saying the reaction to George Floyd's murder has been, has been to show that morality supersedes coalitional lines. Is it, that what you're it, saying? It weakens it. Uh, is basically the idea. Like you can still see people lining up the way they would normally line up, but they're lining up uh, more weakly than they would have before. Uh, like if they're if they're on if if they're on the side of su like supporting police brutality, basically. Uh, that at at this moment they're going to do that less, uh, you know, with with less vigor than they would have the day before that happened, mm -hmm. uh, be because uh, that side is is you know not. Uh, looking good in this situation because because the violation is so uh, clear cut, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and I mean one one obvious one is just that the uh, the officer is charged with with homicide. So 
-hmm. in many previous cases that didn't happen. And that, so that's just like, you know, one, uh, and you know, politicians calling for uh, uh, bans on chokeholds and uh, things like that, who wouldn't have done that the day before. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, so I think we are seeing movement, not as much as people want. So that's why it's maybe, you know, that's why people are frustrated, but, uh, mm -hmm. but, but I think if, uh, but, but yeah, I, I think you do see uh, moral judgments weakening their, uh, their uh, alliances. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so I wanted, I wanted to return back to what just, you only wrote like a, a short paragraph about it, but I thought it was a really fascinating point. Um, and, and it was actually one that I wanted to bring up with Josh Green and it, it didn't wind up happening, but, you know, from a functional role of morality, my mind naturally wants to wander to like a utilitarian framework and thinking like, well, why, why isn't, why doesn't morality seem to boil down to just like pure utilitarianism or utilitarianism in, in maybe it's caricaturized sense. Um, and you had written, um, about just a, a short thing about why utilitarian, we don't see utilitarian thinking as, as like a standard practice in morality. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that on this podcast. I thought it was very enlightening. Um, maybe you, could you. Okay. Here, here's the paragraph. It's a little dense out of context, but we can unpack it as we talk. Mm -hmm. It says, nonetheless, because people can moralize a range of identifiable actions, they can in principle moralize non-consequentialist decisions themselves, as for example, advocated by utilitarian philosophers. That is, it is possible to use the expected consequences of actions to make moral judgments and coordinate side taking. There are several reasons why this approach is not more prevalent. First, consequentialist behavior might not be a category that is sufficiently identifiable to be useful for coordination, perhaps being too high level compared with more basic categories such as lying, killing, and stealing. Second, welfare consequences might be particularly difficult to use for coordination given that they tend to be the basis of the dispute in the first place. That is, different sides will tend to disagree on the weight to put on each disputant's welfare, potentially making welfare judgments ill-suited for coming to a consensus. In some, non-consequentialism and moral conscience might be explained as a defensive strategy, which in turn can be explained by the details of the coordination problem confronting bystanders who choose sides. So that's the paragraph. Okay, and it's, yes, that it's definitely. A bit heady, but maybe putting it into just like casual conversational terms and then unpacking. And now that you've mentioned there are potentially more arguments, I'd love to hear, I'd love mm. to hear more. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. It's kind of a complicated issue, uh, but yeah. So, uh, so the idea, so moral judgment is very complicated as, as uh, just like that paragraph sounded kind of complicated, um, <laughs> but uh, so there's, it, there's kind of layers of strategy on strategy. And so that makes it difficult to make generalizations because every strategy has a counter strategy. So what holds for the strategy doesn't hold for the counter strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but basically the idea is like, so we moralize actions uh, and that's, that's sort of the, what I think is like the most important uh, feature of our moral judgment is that they center around actions. And this is something that people uh, could easily overlook in most uh, moral psychologists and, and uh, theorists have overlooked is, is that uh, actions are so central. And um, I draw an analogy to this to uh, language where uh, verbs are actually the most you know, important uh, words in, in our sentences uh, because actions are, are so important. Uh, nouns are much simpler. They just you know, label an object. But if you want those objects to do something, you need a verb. And so verbs are the most important words uh, in uh, human uh, language. And similarly, uh, actions are the focus of our uh, moral judgments. And this is odd and uh, not very consistent with utilitarianism because utilitarianism uh, and consequentialism in general are focused on outcomes. Uh, not did you lie or steal, but did you make people healthier, happier, uh, safer uh, mm. than before? Uh, and so those are uh, uh, 
uh, more like uh, adjectives uh, instead of uh, you know actions. And so, so why isn't our moral judgment focused on adjectives? That would be another way of expressing you know the hmm. debate between deontologists and consequentialists. Um, and uh, so anyway, uh, so so I kind of have this theory about how why moral judgment is so focused on actions, why that leads to the conflict between utilitarians uh, and deontologists. Um, and, uh, but uh, I still have to reconcile the fact that um, people like Mill and Bentham, the, the utilitarians, they didn't just say, you know, uh, you should do this because it's nice. They said you should do it because it's moral. Uh, so their mind still connected these two things, even though morality is about actions, uh, these philosophers, you know, artificially were able to get their minds uh, to hook up these concepts uh, so that uh, even though they would normally be looking for actions to condemn, uh, they're now looking for outcomes uh, and then uh, looking at whatever, whatever action was connected to it. Maybe you told the truth, but it hurt someone. They'll still condemn you uh, for that. Uh, so, uh, so they kind of wired up their own minds to do things a little bit differently. And a good a theory of moral psychology has to explain why that's even possible. Um, mm. And mm. so that's what I'm, a little bit of what I'm dealing with in that paragraph is saying that, um, well, actually, our, one of the properties of our moral judgment is that it's very flexible. We can choose a new action that no one's ever seen before and, and decide that that's morally wrong. And if we project that out uh, into the world, and announce, and, and if other people agree with us, then that becomes, that's added to the list of moral wrongs, and we'll all uh, jump on somebody that, that uh, crosses that uh, line. So that's one of the most important properties of moral judgment, and that uh, the origin of this is because humans have new and unexpected conflicts. Uh, so uh, we might, you know, find a new resource that we had never found before. Well, now we're going to have new conflicts, and we need new moral rules to deal with that. And so our mind has an ability to mint uh, new moral rules uh, as needed. Uh, so using that ability, a, a utilitarian philosopher can uh, just mint a new moral rule in their mind that says, uh, you know, if the action leads to the better consequence, then it's per permitted. And uh, if it leads to the worst consequence, then it's, then it's not. Uh, so that is, you know, conceptually possible uh, for, for a human mind. And then I then the next part of the paragraph discusses why we don't all just do that. Uh, so, so we need to know why it's possible. Why can utilitarian philosophers say this is the morally right thing to do? And then why now we need to know why everyone doesn't uh, just do that? What's the why is that you know counterintuitive and not the first thing that we thought of? And also why once they thought of it, why didn't it just spread the way you know iPhones uh, spread? You know somebody thought of that and it just everyone. Uh, adopted it or um, so why you know after Bentham had this brilliant idea why didn't it just spread among everyone we why didn't we all just recognize this uh, quickly uh, so what's the what's the uh, limit there and so the so the the, uh, the, the main point is that um, we might specifically be inhibiting uh, considering uh, the consequences like who's happier or less happy uh, because that's what our alliance psychology already does. Uh, we already are thinking about our own welfare and the welfare of our allies. And, we're, and that's the calculation we're using to figure out, should I support my friend in this conflict? How, how will this affect them? How much will it affect them? And so that means the other side is doing, the, is doing uh, very different math uh, than us uh, to figure this out because they value their ally much more uh, than we do. And so if, if we, the more attention we pay to the consequences, the more this is just going to go right, lead us right back to coalitions. Uh, so it's, you know, it's conceptually possible to do it. It's just that it's difficult because our alliance psychology is already focused on uh, people's welfare outcomes. Mm. Uh, and uh, so meanwhile, their actions are pretty separate from that. So we can, uh, you know, we can identify actions without, um, and separate separate that from the uh, from the outcome, uh, and that's a trick in itself. But our mind is already good at doing that. That's what you know. Many of our verbs do. They point out the action without saying uh, the consequence of, of the action. Yeah, yeah. 
That's interesting. So, and, and I can see as I'm speaking with you more and more, how much of your work is rooted in alliance building and coalitions. Mm -hmm. So I'm not familiar. I have not read your papers about, um, coalition formation and friendship formation, but my understanding is that a lot of your recent work has been regarding the formation of friendships more explicitly. Is that right? Um, actually, that's it, not really recent work. Uh, it, it was at, kind of at the same time because I realized I had to understand alliances to understand moral judgment. And the impartiality was the clue to that because I'm like, well, if this concept is turning off partiality, then that means that you have to understand partiality in order to understand why impartiality could be useful. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so my early work on friendship was, you know, in, was in my dissertations, you know, at the same time as the moral uh, judgment. Uh, but, um, but yeah, but I have been also doing, you know, recent uh, experiments, having people choose sides, you know, in the lab and, and, uh, and yeah, uh, I'd love to hear about that. Uh, yeah, so uh, so I used an economic game, which, as you know, is a common method. Um, I part of my background is in experimental economics, so using economic games to uh, look at uh, people's strategic decisions in the lab and with uh, money at stake, and that's what makes it more of you know makes the decisions have actual consequences, uh, mm -hmm. so that we can uh, see what happens then and you know compare to just what they might say. You know, in a survey uh, that doesn't affect anyone. Um, so anyway, so uh, so you've probably uh, seen things like the public goods game. That's probably the most commonly used to to study you know cooperation in groups, uh, and so uh, so so a lot of work on that. Um, and so I designed a game to look at uh, alliance formation, choosing sides <clears throat> that. Uh, basically takes the ideas from my theories and then kind of uh, uh, makes uh, makes them real, you know, in an economic game. So people are actually playing the game that's in the theory. Um, so in the game, there's eight players and two players at a time are chosen to have a conflict over a resource. Uh, the resource is worth a dollar fifty, uh, and they're going to have multiple of these conflicts. So every time they win a conflict, they can just pocket a dollar fifty. Uh, and so two at a time are randomly chosen. And this is supposed to represent the fact that we walk around in everyday life and then suddenly we disagree with someone. We don't necessarily, we didn't plan to disagree with them. We weren't like out to go like, you know, grab their wallet or something. Uh, it's just that uh, it just happened to be that, uh, you know, that I want to watch one TV show and another person in the household wants to watch a different TV show. So neither of us chose that, uh, but it, that's just what happened. Um, and so this is, and uh, so most of our conflicts are not with enemies. They're with, they're with our closest, uh, uh, in our closest relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, uh, and they're not, and most conflicts don't start with a malicious intention. Uh, we, we often accuse others of having a malicious intention, but that's just a strategy that we use in our conflict. That's not mm -hmm. actually, you know, what, typically leads to conflicts. <clears throat> so, um, so that's what the game represents. <clears throat> and um, so once these two are, so they just, you know, uh, both showed up, there's a resource, only one of them can have it. Uh, and the way that to try to win this resource is to get others to choose your side. So there's eight players, so that means there's six others that you could try to recruit uh, to side with you. And whoever gets more supporters gets the $1.50. Uh, and uh, in the basic game, there's no discussion, so you can't ask people to choose sides with you. Um, instead, they just choose sides, uh, however they're going to choose, and then they see what happens. <clears throat> but this game is re played repeatedly among the same group of eight people, mm. and they know who each player is. They all have a, a label. Um, <clears throat> sorry. And um, so... Uh, so the way, so in principle, they could form alliances by siding with those who have sided with them in the past. And mm -hmm. we also recorded uh, the outcome of every fight, including who chose which side, uh, and showed that to them on the screen in case they wanted to use that history uh, to make mm -hmm. their decisions. 
Um, and so in this environment, we just wanted to create a minimal sort of problem of side taking where conflicts arise, others have to choose sides and then see how they, how they do it. And what we wanted to know was uh, whether they would form alliances, whether they would side with those you know, who had sided uh, with them uh, previously, uh, or whether they might just not really have a preference and you know, not care very much and just, I don't know, play randomly. Uh, or another possibility is that they would more go with popularity, like look at who's winning conflicts and maybe side with them. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, so we looked at those, uh, and basically what we found is that, uh, people just formed alliances very quickly, uh, you know, right away. And the, the alliances that they formed were also, uh, pretty stable. Uh, so pretty quickly that you, you, you know, you're player B and you decide, uh, you're going to support J and then J supports you. And then you guys, uh, stick to supporting each other, uh, uh through the course of, of the, of the experiment. Um, so, you know, so people did this, you know, very quickly, even in this kind of bizarre economic game where just everyone's just a letter on the screen. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, and that, so this, so that I, I think is just, it you know, gives us a little bit of controlled laboratory evidence for just how, uh, how prone people are to, to form these alliances. Um, and uh, uh, so yeah, that's the, that's the basic. Idea. Yeah. Yeah. And so did you start, have you started to add any wrenches to the works, any, any extra things that might influence alliance formation? Not yet, but that is on my wish list. I mean, so from the start, I wanted to add moral content to the conflicts. Mm -hmm. uh, but I haven't done that yet. And I knew that that would be difficult. The game is already fairly complicated, you know, with eight players. Um, right. And, right. Um, and so the way they have to make their choices is they uh, rank everybody else. So they say their best friend, their second best, their third best. And we need to know that because they don't know who the conflicts are going to break out between. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so we need to know, so their first rank tells us who they would support against everybody. The second rank says they would support them against everybody except their first rank. Mm. Uh, so participants, you know, each round are able to you know, rank everybody else. And then uh, this is a loyalty ranking. So they're ranking their loyalties to everyone. Uh, mm. And then they can uh, update those loyalties every, every round after seeing what happened in the previous round, who's, who sided uh, with, with who. Uh, so the game's already kind of pushing pushing on complexity side. So I started there, but on my wish list uh, for the future is to try to add some moral content. Uh, and the way uh, this would work would be, so right now they're uh, just two individuals just both want the same resource, but there's no, there's no basis to decide like that one's morally right or one's morally wrong. Uh, but if, uh, even if we just created like a fictional uh, story for why they're in this conflict and said, you know, one person tried to steal from the other. Well, that would add moral content. Uh, and that could even be mixed into more neutral ones where they both, you know, arrive to the same apple tree at the same time. Um, but there's only one apple on it. Um, so, so then if somebody forms an alliance and they've been, you know, your player B, you've been siding with player J, um, and then all of a sudden, but now player J was wrong. They, they're the one that stole. Are you gonna still stick with your alliance uh, or are you gonna break from alliances with this, just given this, you know, sort of cover story that it's a, uh, that about who was uh, in the wrong. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so we, um, so that's the idea is to, is to start to add some moral content. Yeah, really cool. I'll be interested to, to read that when it comes out. So, um, any, do you, like, what are your, what, what is your thinking moving forward? As you're planning on continuing your research trajectory, what are you finding yourself most interested in with regards to how to apply your theories to um, just different, different areas of research that are catching your eye? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um... So I'm in a political science department. Uh, you might have noticed that, uh, just I, even though my background is psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, so one thing that I think there's uh, is you know uh, 
very exciting uh, potential is applying moral psychology just to all the different dilemmas of politics. Um, and uh, so I teach a course on moral politics where, where we do that, uh, but just, you know, things about taxes or, you know, safety and viruses or voting, uh, housing, rent control, medicine, uh, food, poverty, jobs, abortion, contraception. Uh, so all of these uh, different, you know, political issues, um, uh, I, I think are ripe for moral psychology to, you know, and so moral psychology has gotten into it to some extent, but usually the goal is to understand you know, the judgments themselves uh, rather than trying to understand judgments about a specific type of policy um, mm. that, you know, that a voter might actually encounter, um, you know, on a ballot initiative uh, uh, or, or in a political campaign when they're deciding, you know, whether to vote for somebody. Uh, mm. So, um, so anyway, so, so I think there's a lot of, uh, and then, um, uh, you know, there's tons of work on the trolley problem and I like the trolley problem. Um, but, uh, it's very easy to construct those kinds of dilemmas for any topic. So there's no reason why we have to only, you know, focus on that one or, or even just focus on, uh, killing. Uh, so one, one, uh, uh paper that we wrapped up recently, uh, looks at, uh, debt dilemmas. And so the dilemma here is, this is between countries, uh, because my uh, co-author is very interested in uh, uh, countries' uh, debts to each other. Uh, and then when a financial crisis happens, uh, does the country still you know, need to repay? Like how do they trade off their citizens' welfare uh, against the, their promise you know, to, to repay? Mm -hmm. And so that's the same kind of dilemma. You've got the Kantian side that would say, you always have to repay a debt, the consequences don't matter. Um, and then you've got the consequentialist side that says, no, hold on a minute, paying a debt, that's just a kind of an arbitrary action. So let's, let's, add, let's add up the consequences to figure out which is actually going to lead to more uh, you know, health and happiness. Uh, so, um, so anyway, so we find the same uh, same kind of division that, that we find for trolley problems with this, you know, some people on the consequentialist side, some people on the Kantian side. Uh, we also find that they are using that kind of reasoning. Uh, so they're not just, you know, viewing it like all, con all consequentialists, which you might've thought because it's an economic issue. Uh, so you might think, well, economic issues are going to be more about costs and benefits. Um, but, but we find them using like uh, the same, uh, sort of deontic language, um, uh, must and have to and need to, uh, that, that we find in a trolley problem. Uh, and then also saying things like uh, no excuses and it, it, no matter what the consequences. So participants will just say these things directly, just like Kant would. Um, and uh, so anyway, so, so that, um, uh, so yeah, so, you know, applying uh, these ideas to this per this particular area of uh, international debts and uh, you know, uh, economic crises uh, is just an uh, yeah that that's like an example of applying uh, applying this to uh, to uh, political uh, issues. So I think there's a ton of work to to do on that uh, that could also help to uh, bridge divides between social psychology and political science. So that's one area. Um, I mean, there, I don't know, there's many, there's yeah. many others. That's um, so cool. Mm -hmm. um, it's, that, that's really neat. It's fun to hear about. It's also fun for me to hear a little bit about uh, the poli sci side, because I haven't, I don't know that I've, I think I've had political scientists on this podcast before, but the, it's always been like a, a double appointment and um, mm -hmm. hasn't specifically centered around political science research, mm -hmm. which has been on my radar for a while. But anyway, um, mm -hmm. Peter, thank you so much. I, I mm -hmm. have had a lot of fun listening to you and getting to um, get a deeper understanding of your theory. And I find it just really interesting. The framing intrigues me and has, you know, uh, pushed me to reconsider a lot of research in new light so thank you so much um thank you so much again sure yeah th thanks for having me a great conversation and 
um, I appreciate, always appreciate the chance to uh, discuss these things. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Crewbie by Kindswider and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.